Hello and welcome to the Medjlis Podcast, Radio for Europe, Radio Liberty's current affairs talk show focusing on Central Asia. I'm Bruce Paneer, host of the Medjlis and author of the Central Asia and Focus newsletter. The Middle Corridor trade route has become much more important since Russia launched its full-scale war in Ukraine. The European Union responded to Russian invasion by imposing sanctions on Russia, including on goods transiting Russian territory, necessitating use of alternate routes. The Middle Corridor connects Europe to Asia through the Caucasus and Central Asia. However, while basic infrastructure of the Middle Corridor was in place in Central Asia, replacing Russia as a trade route requires substantial work on the road and railway systems and ports in Central Asia. On January 29th and 30th, there was an Investors Forum for EU Central Asia Transport Connectivity in Brussels, where it was announced the European and international investors would commit some 10 billion euros in support and investments toward transport connectivity between Europe and Central Asia as part of the EU's global gateway trade network. It's a major boost in expanding the major the middle corridor in Central Asia. And to discuss all this, I am joined by Samuel Dovary Vesterby, Director of the European Neighborhood Council and Master of Ceremonies, if I may, at the Brussels Forum this week, and Kistudis Jankowskis, the EU Ambassador to Kazakhstan. And thank you both for joining me. Uh, Samuel, I'd like to start with you. Um, could you give us some of the basic facts, details about what was discussed at the Investment Forum in Brussels this week? Uh, what, what is all that money going toward? Well, a brief historical context might be due in the sense that the Investors Forum, which took place Monday, Tuesday this week, is a follow-up to the Global Gateway Conference, which took place in October last year. And it was very much, in the beginning, an attempt to drum up investments from the private sector, and it became successfully so, as we saw this week. And before the uh, Investors Forum, there, of course, was speculation to the degree to which uh, the EU would be able to attract investment banks, EIB, uh, European Bank for Reconstruction and Development Funds, private sector funds, both from the region as well from the member states. And so there was a lot of question marks as to whether this EU strategy would really attract enough business. And the, I would have to say that the, this week very much proved that it did. There was um, there were perhaps one of the important announcements was this um, essentially package uh, of 1.5 billion uh, euros uh, signed uh, with Kazakhstan and Uzbekistan and I believe Kyrgyzstan as well uh, on um, on connectivity and and it's it's supported by the uh, Kazakhstan Development Bank and and also supported by the investment banks and as a result we we saw what was initially a strategy or initiative materialize in actual economic terms in terms of investments and I think. Maybe we'll discuss this more afterwards, but it's relevant in the sense that there is this buzzword in the EU, which they, is known as blending. This, this concept blending is is a, is a typical EU bureaucratic lingo, and I say that in a in a polite and, and positive way. But it's of course a very important concept because it means, you know, the EU comes out and puts some funds and some guarantees. And then it goes to the private sector and says, do you want to top up on this money and add in yours as well? And goes to the investment banks and says, would you like to add your investments and your money as well? And it's a very unique way of financing infrastructure and connectivity and transport because 
compared to, for example, the Belt and Road Initiative, it doesn't have that component. It's much more government run. There's a you know government you know government official and some very government linked banks that tell you, okay, we're going to put in this money. We don't need to you know create too much consensus about it. We don't need to go and actually attract business and do impact assessment and see if it's going to make us a bunch of money and if it's going to be sustainable, environmentally friendly and reliable, which is very top down. Well, the Global Gateway Initiative and the Investors Forum is, is, is very much the opposite of that. And I think that's the reason why this morning when, when we had discussions with all the Central Asian ambassadors, including the, the Tajik ambassador to the EU, the Tajik ambassador specifically says the EU is one among many actors investing in Central Asia, but it's by far the most reliable one. Okay, thank you. Um, Ambassador Jankowskis, I want to bring you in for a second. Can you talk a little bit about Kazakhstan's role in Global Gateway? I mean, we know that Kazakhstan is a key country in the Middle Corridor. Uh, it's the only Central Asian country, of course, that borders China on one side and the Caspian Sea on the other. What, what is Kazakhstan's contribution to this? Uh, well, uh, first of all, thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. And indeed, uh, the last uh, well couple of days, two days of the Investors Forum in Brussels was quite an event. The first of that kind, uh, but I believe it's not the last one because uh, now the work is only starting and we will see more of uh, events like that uh, exactly bringing institutions, governments and the private sector, possible potential private investors. Now, Kazakhstan, uh, I think many of our listeners know or have heard the name of Kazakhstan. It's the ninth biggest country, the biggest in Central Asia. And uh, maybe not many know that part, a small part of Kazakhstan, but rather large part of its territory is in the geographical Europe. So geographically, actually, it's similar to, to Turkey, Turkey, and uh, it bridges, it bridges uh, European Union, South Caucasus with Central Asia and, and Asia, China. So in a way, Kazakhstan is uh, the biggest landmass there um, in the middle. And for the, it's crucial for European Union to uh, Asia, European Union to China, and to Central Asia for the connectivity. Kazakhstan was always playing an important role in the region, uh, being a regional leader, being a global player, uh, being open for uh, European businesses and investments, because uh, now in the country, uh, European Union is the biggest investor. and. Um, uh, European Union is uh, Kazakhstan's biggest trading partner. That partnership was mainly focusing on energy and oil, which is still an important part. But now when um, the two countries, uh, usually the northern route, that's the one uh, crossing Russia and Belarus, uh, is now under sanctions. Then the southern, if you look uh, kind of going south uh, through Iran, Iran is also a country under sanctions. So that leaves us with rather kind of small corridor. That's why we call it a Trans-Caspian or some call it a middle corridor. Uh, it is an important way, free of sanctions, crossing uh, Turkey and the Black Sea, South Caucasus countries, Caspian Sea uh, and the Central Asia. And Kazakhstan there is, is, the, biggest, uh, is the biggest actor with, with two ports, which, were, which are now kind of starting to develop really fast. Because, um, well, uh, years before, the northern route was uh, always trying to be cheapest and, um, and fastest. Now, with the sanctions there in place, and probably the sanctions will be there 
for quite some time. Uh, that's the time for this middle corridor or Trans-Caspian route to really pick up. For that, it is important for us. It's important for our partners in Central Asia and in Asia. But we need all to work together. There are several actors that need to align the efforts and work together. And that's part of this global gateways, our outreach. And that was part what we tried to bridge all of this at the Investors Forum because our South Caucasus partners, uh, Turkey, was also invited there. Okay, thank you. And before I get on to, uh, to some of the projects, let me ask you one more question, Ambassador. Um, you know, Samuel had mentioned that there it, that it's a blend, right? That they're looking for investment for all kinds of different partners, as well as the money that's coming from governments. Kazakhstan, uh, a Kazakh bank actually was one of the the uh, signatories to one of these new agreements. Can you talk about Kazakhstan's financial participation in global gateway projects? Absolutely. Uh, Kazakhstan is uh, the middle income country, has been there for quite some time. So frankly, that country is in a way self-sufficient. It was uh, not in the need of, let's say, so much of the Chinese investments and, and loans. Uh, it's self-sufficient. It has the pretty well-established uh, sovereign wealth fund. Then it's the big, uh, basically the infrastructure there, the railway sports, are in the hands of the well-run um, state company called Kazakh Railways. Then um, uh, if you look into some of the most recent investments, uh, they are now building um, one additional uh, railway line from uh, the Chinese-Kazakh border till the middle of the country. They're opening the third crossing point uh, with China on the on the border, kind of the, the most northern uh, crossing point. Uh, the build of the bypass uh, via Almaty to increase uh, increase the speed of transportation. This is all basically done by Kazakhstan itself, uh, with some help uh, primarily by a European Bank for Reconstruction and Development. So Kazakhstan is now also trying to play a bigger role with its own development bank, uh, becoming also a, a donor in a way uh, on the world markets. Uh, for the countries that uh, that need assistance, for example, uh, uh, Afghanistan. So Kazakhstan has has always played that uh, that important role. But the study which the European Commission uh, did together with the EBRD uh, last year showed that there are much more investments needed for this route to really pick up. So it's likely that also Kazakhstan will not be able to develop all of that infrastructure itself. And they will need some of the assistance. Now, as, as Samuel said, EU is doing this blending. And blending means that sometimes we do the grants, like we funded the study, uh, EBRD study, which became the basis. Then uh, some other banks, uh, World Bank uh, produced its own study. Uh, Asian Development Bank did also some additional research into kind of fundability uh, aspects um, of the transportation. Then uh, what happened in the Investors Forum, we tried to attract our international financial institutions. So European Investment Bank, EBRD, World Bank, ADB, they come with loans, loans with uh, good uh, conditions, uh, borrowing conditions. And also international projects bring that element of supervision and transparency into these projects, which is also important and gives the assurance uh, to likely future private investors that these projects will be run according to the world standards. 
And then what European institutions can do, they can provide the guarantees, the guarantees for private investors that are also uh, going to come uh, hopefully uh, more um, in uh, kind of in the bigger numbers to various of these projects. Um, EBRD study identified several uh, infrastructure bottlenecks and also the soft connectivity bottlenecks like management of different procedures and digitalization. Uh, so that all uh, needs investment. At uh, in Brussels now, we looked at the lowest hanging fruits, so the most bankable and manageable, manageable projects, which uh, would uh, be the fastest solutions to increase the speed, reliability, predictability for containers moving along this route. Um, more hopefully to come. Okay, great. Thank you. Um, Samuel, uh, I know there's a lot of projects that are involved in this. I, I believe it was 33 hard infrastructure projects and seven soft infrastructure projects. Um, but can you can you kind of give us an idea of what, what are the priority projects? Where's the first, what are the first projects this money is going to be directed toward? Well, as you correctly mentioned, there are many, many projects and we're talking about, you know, billions and billions of uh, euros in funding. So, there's a, a vast array uh, of different projects and there's a vast array of private sector uh, investment and interest. And what we saw already back in um, in October last year at the Global Gateway Conference is that there were many, many memorandums of understanding signed on everything from uh, critical raw materials to road and infrastructure. So the, the plethora is pretty wide. But if, if you... If you ask me what are the two perhaps most important, or at least from my perspective, most interesting flagship projects, which I would raise to your audience, um, I would probably say that one of them, a Swedish-German energy investment in Kazakhstan, uh, which is building uh, green hydrogen. So it's an energy project in Kazakhstan with EU funding, and um, and and the logic behind it is, of course, that it's a massive multi-billion uh, investment project that allows number one for uh, Central Asian energy consumption of a renewable kind that's cheap and that's reliable and that's in some ways autonomous because it's renewable energy. The Central Asian, especially the Kazakhs, would not be dependent on others. And they would be able to use that energy for their own populations, as well as for industry in the region, as well as potentially for any other investors in supply chains and industrial uh, investments in the region. So I think that Swedish-German uh, hydro green hydrogen project, which has EU support, uh, is a very, very important flagship project um, in the case of Kazakhstan. And then I think the second one that is also, I think, of equal importance and of, of similar economic energy strategic thinking is the, is the investment into the hydroelectricity, uh, sorry, hydroelectric uh, Rogun Dam in Tajikistan, which, uh, if I'm not mistaken, is, is scheduled to be the highest dam in the world. And, um, and this project is equally interesting because it has a it of course has the hydroelectric renewable energy component uh, and the similar logic as i just explained vis-a-vis uh, -vis the the hydrogen green hydrogen plant in uh, in kazakhstan but it has an additional element and the additional element is water management because 
for people, and it's a small sidetrack, but for people who know Central Asia, um, the concept of climate change difficulties and water scarcity and water management are very, very important because it's a region which suffers from lack of water and the the, the potential, the, the scarcity of water has the potential of deeply impacting agriculture, which in turn agri- uh, impacts food security, which in turn impacts uh, even things like the textile industry uh, and agricultural textile garment apparel industry, which is very, very important in, for example, a country like Uzbekistan, that is a a more of a net importer of water compared to uh, Tajikistan, which is is a more mountainous area, and hence it's an exporter of water, let's say. So there's also this kind of climate change, water scarcity, water management component, which is very, very important. And I think that's, I think, but we can also, uh, of course, um, ask Ambassador Jan Kauskas about this, but I think that's one of the strategic reasoning behind also the EU support of these two uh, very important uh, flagship projects. Okay, um, thank you. Ambassador Jan Kauskas, your comments? Uh, yes, um, Samuel is absolutely right. Uh, water is going to be one of the major issues in that uh, kind of mid of the continent. Uh, climate change there is felt uh, double as heavy and uh, management, proper management of water irrigation, uh, because right now with old post-Soviet, so to say, uh, irrigation uh, techniques, half of that water is just simply evaporating. So irrigation for, again, there where agriculture has a lot of potential is very important. Uh, Samuel mentioned another project, Svevind, that's a German-Swedish investment, which is... uh, planning to build uh, enormous wind and solar uh, green hydrogen production in the west of Kazakhstan. Uh, Being ninth largest country uh, in the world, Kazakhstan has a lot of space and there is a lot of wind, there is a lot of sun. Enormous potential. Question is how to bring that green energy to Europe. Part of that, of course, will be used uh, by Kazakh industries to green steel, uh, for example, or fertilizers. But uh, the major part of that is meant to go to Europe. Do you export green electricity? You need cables. Do you export ammonia? And for that, for example, both ports, Kurik and Aktau, uh, on the Caspian Sea are are crucial because so far I think ammonia is one of the uh, preferred options of, of transportation. That is in a few years to come. Because now this uh, project of the solar and, and, and wind is only uh, in the stage of feasibility studies and some practical drillings and testings are starting. So in a couple of years, the amounts will constantly increase. And for that, you need port facilities. You need ships in the Caspian Sea and you need to build ships. You, now with the Volga Don Canal closed, um, you need to build in the sea. And um, that's uh, that comes to Turkmenistan, to Kazakhstan, to Azerbaijan. None of them have a very big uh, shipbuilding capacity, and that's another potential need for investments. But unless there are cargoes, it's very difficult to convince people to invest into building ships. Unless there are ships, there will be uh, you know a few entrepreneurs willing to. And of put and store their cargoes uh, in the ports, uh, just not knowing when they can be transported to the other shore. So both need to work together. 
And I would say another very important thing is because uh, EBRD has already uh, invested and it is investing in this Almaty bypass for the railroad, deepening of the Aktau and Kurik ports because Caspian water is now uh, in the process of kind of getting down. Um, you need you need dredging of this uh, sea bottom there. Uh, enlarging port facilities, you need more cranes for container handling. But very importantly right now is that the three countries uh, along the route, Georgia, Azerbaijan, Kazakhstan, have agreed a joint venture among their railways, and they promise to agree now on the single charter. Very important thing, which would give confidence and predictability for economic operators that they would know how quickly and uh, at what cost their cargoes would be delivered from, let's say, Kazakhstan, Central Asia to European ports. And for that, you need also create something like a platform where uh, customers could track the cargoes, submit electronic uh, declarations for customs, for crossings, and make this intermodular because it's a difficult route. You need to load to rails or wagons and then maybe trucks, ships uh, several times. So you need a very well uh, working management. And I wish that uh, either we help uh, the countries there in the region, or maybe there is a big European company with experience in doing that, which could come. And uh, Minister of Transport of Kazakhstan has uh, openly and uh, now actively invited, and he's touring several, uh, several European countries, inviting experienced uh, cargo handling companies to come invest and, and help to manage that line. Okay, thank you. Um, a reminder, we're talking about the recent EU forum where a 10 billion euro investment and support package for Central Asia was announced. And my guests are Kastudis Jankauskas, the EU ambassador to Kazakhstan, and Samuel Dovary Vesterby, director of the European Neighborhood Council. Thanks both again for being on the show to both of you. Um, Samuel, um, let's talk about what, what is going to come from Central Asia and go to Europe, because I know that critical raw materials was a big uh, big topic at this forum. Um, so can you talk a little bit about that? And, and also, I want to refer specifically to something you wrote last week in an article um, where you were talking about Uzbekistan. And and you said that it, uh, part, part of the Global Gateway aims to turn Uzbekistan into an industrial supply chain hub for raw materials in high demand like uranium, lithium, titanium, and copper. So can you talk a little bit about critical raw materials and getting them from Central Asia to Europe, please? Yeah, with, with pleasure. Um, there's there's a, a very, very important component of the EU's Central Asia strategy, which is linked to critical raw materials. For a, a prolonged period of time, the EU has, has relied on critical raw materials from very, very few borderline monopolistic sources. So essentially, the critical raw materials, you know, moving from um, critical raw materials like boron or all the way down to you know uranium or 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 other types um, like geranium or 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 many other there's so many critical raw materials and also other non-critical raw materials that are still very important for our supply chains for a very long period of time the EU was relying on few countries namely China but also a few others uh, in order to source uh, those uh, materials these, material, these critical raw materials are essential for <clears throat> a, a range of different uh, products. 
for example, uh, eolic wind turbines, as um, Ambassador Yen Kaukas uh, mentioned before, but also solar panels, our telephones, microchips, various types of consumer products and so forth. And so they are very, very important in our supply chains and they're very important in our in our economies. And so there are these two problems that we've been facing over the years. One of them, as I mentioned, is the fact that we have been sourcing them from uh, very few uh, clients or very, very few sources. And the other problem has been that we've been sourcing them often in countries that have um, very, very uh, problematic labor and environmental standards. Um, and so what, what Global Gateway um, has been trying to do is signing um, MOUs with, for example, Uzbekistan, but Kazakhstan is an equally important country when it comes to critical raw materials, precisely with the intention of uh, being able to mine these critical raw materials and bring them uh, to our supply chains in, a, in an environmentally and socially responsible way. And so this is a very interesting point because, I mean, I'm going to be brutally honest, when you look at European history for, for a long period of time, I think the general perception, and I think it reflects sadly a reality, is that um, you know empires and countries and, and colonial empires had the tendency to go to other countries, take their raw materials, at whatever cost and in a very um, in, a, in a very unfair practice and then bring them back and so forth. And so I think what the European Union is trying to do today is it's trying to say, listen, we need these raw materials, but we've implemented very strict laws, uh, due diligence compliance laws that constrain our companies to be um, far more environmentally friendly and far more um, and far more uh, diligent with regards to things like child labor, um, with things like um, you know not using you know labor migration that's undeclared, uh, not having uh, discriminatory practices against women in the workplace, and so forth and so forth. And I think uh, perhaps we don't have time to to delve into it in that much detail, but I think it's worth mentioning on your show that a country like Germany has passed a legislation uh, which is called the LKSG legislation uh, on the 1st of January last year. And this legislation essentially penalizes any German company with a potential 2% annual turnover fine or penalty of a, of a company's annual turnover. So that's potentially billions and billions. It, it fines it if uh, there is evidence that along this company's supply chain there is um, a breach of environmental labor standards and so forth. And so that's, in short, quite revolutionizing in the sense that that's a way to guarantee that EU supply chains, not only in critical raw materials, but also in critical raw materials, also in textile, also in automotive, also in, in white goods and in, in, in other types of, um, of value chains, <clears throat> it, it kind of guarantees that that there is a minimum labor standard and a minimum environmental standard, and so I think I think in the context of the EU's need for those critical raw materials in Central Asia, the EU and its member states have noticed that in Kazakhstan and in Uzbekistan, but also potentially in the other Central Asian republics, there are certain uh, standards which can be upheld 
there is a a potential to um, find those critical raw materials, mine those critical raw materials, and bring them back through supply chains uh, in a in a responsible way. And then, with regards to your question on supply chain hubs, um, that's an, indeed an, an interesting. Um, <clears throat> it's an interesting uh, point because at the moment, a lot of the global gateway and a lot of the so-called middle corridor initiatives still view Central Asia as a type of as a type of transit area for goods, for critical raw materials, for energy. But when we look a little bit more long term, it also has a potential role as an actual supply chain hub. So, for example, a country like Uzbekistan, which is not necessarily on the traditional China-EU middle core trajectory, can also provide a type of critical raw material and general supply chain hub value to, uh, to European economies. For example, let's say that there are certain types of critical raw material being mined in Kazakhstan or Uzbekistan, that process might lead to other industries that use the waste of the first industry to create new business, or sometimes there's spin, spin-off businesses in supply chains that are created as a, as a result of growth uh, in connectivity and so forth. So I think it's very important to, to think about how how Uzbekistan and the other Central Asian countries are not just a transit, but also a potential supply chain hub and a potential hub for new industry and and for growth. Thank you. And I should mention that due diligence was a big part of this this forum and the talk that you had today, uh, which was very reassuring because I know a lot of people were concerned that $10 billion could just disappear into corrupt uh, black holes of Central Asia. Um, And before I leave critical raw materials, uh, Master Yankowskis, Kazakhstan, of course, uh, has some of these too. And I know that when they had the C5 in meeting in Germany last year, uh, one of the key uh, agreements that was signed was for a German company to set up um, an operation to mine and process lithium in Kazakhstan, for example. I think they're going to put up uh, half a million dollar, or half a billion dollars uh, into that. Can you talk a little bit about Kazakhstan and critical raw materials and their interaction with the European Union? Yes, Kazakhstan, if I'm not mistaken, was the third country in the world uh, with which European Union has signed a special memorandum of understanding that was done by the president of the European Commission in November 22. Uh, that was in Sharm el-Sheikh at the COP27, if I'm not, uh, if I'm not mistaken. So it's already uh, some time since then. We have developed since then uh, a concrete action plan. We have uh, heard had uh, two missions of European businesses, two different cities, uh, Oskimian, Pavladar, uh, Astana in Kazakhstan, because Kazakhstan says that they have it all. They have very well set production of uh, aluminum, copper, zinc, uh, titanium, beryllium, and of course lithium is now becoming much more interesting for all of us. Uh, they are now probably the largest country in the world uh, supplying uranium. And, uh, for example, France is one of the biggest consumers there. Uh, huge potential and good timing because Kazakhstan is looking for localizing the production right now, diminishing its dependence, which was there uh, for decades from, uh, from its northern neighbor, setting up its own production. Uh, and there is European interest in these metals, while Kazakhstan wants to diversify its own production, 
It has young uh, and growing uh, societies. So there is a workforce, uh, basically pretty good education. And also our cooperation is very, very active in, uh, in kind of more work on education standards. And many of the countries and companies are also uh, contributing to that. Kazakhstan wants European campuses of various universities to be open there. Uh, Erasmus Plus is the very popular program uh, and so on. So we have the legal basis in place. Uh, Kazakhstan has already signed this uh, um, enhanced partnership and cooperation agreement with European Union, first of its kind in Central Asia. So there is legal base. And now with memorandum in place, with the action plan in place, we need companies. We need companies who would, first of all, come and do the exploration because, um, well, we know there is a lot. But most of these studies were still done back uh, decades ago in Soviet times. So new methods, new 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 ways of exploring so that we, companies would know exactly what there is. And yes, Kazakhstan wants, first of all, our companies, our technologies, modern technologies, green technologies to come to establish the production. And then, of course, we'll need, uh, we'll need that uh, Trans-Caspian corridor to export um, the goods, um, import uh, equipment. And here, uh, both Kazakhstan and Uzbekistan should uh, should actually team together because for all five countries, it's like you know a big river and the small uh, flows, uh, uh, springs that feed into it. Uh, this Trans-Caspian corridor will take it and work it both ways, and there may be not one but several hubs. And along these routes, along these hubs, definitely production uh, can develop. So there is a huge potential there. And uh, I would uh, use this uh, podcast uh, inviting uh, European producers who would be interested to contact us, to come to Kazakhstan. There is already lots of work in place and uh, there could be much more. Okay, great. Thank you. I'm conscious of our time uh, and there's certainly a lot we could talk about, but I want to ask you both to respond to this this one last question and take a few minutes to do so. There are several projects that are that are similar to Global Gateway, right? So there's uh, Belt and Road Initiative. If we want to go back a little bit further, there's the Central Asia Regional Economic Cooperation Program that's an Asian development uh, program with corridors that go through Central Asia. Uh, the Trans-Caspian International Trade Route, the Lapis Lazuli Route, uh, you know, the list goes on and on here. What is distinct? How, how does Global Gateway distinguish itself from those other programs? In what ways is it a little different? In what ways is it complementary to those other projects that are going on? And I'll start with you, Ambassador Jankowskis. Well, uh, Global Gateways is a European Union initiative, and it's not only about the transport. It's about much more basically doing business in the sustainable way. Um, that means that uh, projects that we would be sponsoring and engaging into would uh, not only bring uh, a simple investment and put the railroad there, which is part of what we do, but it would bring it in the sustainable way, meaning bring, bringing it the uh, technologically advanced and green technologies. Uh, it would really make sure that the labor standards, for example, which Samuel talked about, would be respected so European companies would not need to worry about violating any of these rules. I think we, our uh, companies and our investors would come with a sanctions-aware uh, mindset. So this angle, uh, which also is important for European companies, that they would not be in any way involved in circumventing of those, in a way, thoughtful, green, sustainable way. 
Now, Belt and Road, well, for transport, the more connections there are, the better. Cargos will go all of them. They will, uh, businesses will choose what is fastest, what is cheapest, what is most reliable. And here, I think, in a way, our initiatives meet. Uh, what um, If it's only the Central Asia, the market is around 80 million people. If our cargos can cross the Central Asia-China borders, the market there is, is, is much bigger. So potentially, it's, um, it's, uh, it's transit and the localization of uh, industries in, in Central Asia and along the South Caucasus, which have been our partners for all three countries for, uh, for decades. And Global Gateways has this other component because it unites the other projects. Uh, Samuel started with water management. It's, it's inevitably there because if there's going to be no drinking water, no, not speaking of irrigations, I mean, there's going to be no life there in the desert. Uh, secondly, for example, digital connectivity. Again, uh, to make this uh, transport route sustainable, we need we need internet. We are now working within the Global Gateway for digital satellite connectivity project, providing Kazakhstan and other four countries in Central Asia with alternatives because so far they're mainly uh, hanging on uh, one internet cable. So on and so on. I'm just illustrating that. You asked for a few minutes. I could expand more, but let me stop there. Okay, thank you very much. Uh, Samuel, we'll give you the last word then. What, what's different about Global Gateway than these other projects? Well, I mean, first, I think it's important to, to mention that Belt and Road Initiative uh, has areas of complementarity. The trade that we're witnessing in large part is also between China and the EU, and China is a very important trading partner for the EU. And so the infrastructure that's been developed over the years by BRI or Belt and Road is very important. And it's helped develop road connection, uh, dry ports and various types of connectivity in the region, which today is also very helpful for the EU. But in addition to that, I think it's important to say that BRI and Global Gateway are fundamentally different. And we've discussed it a little bit before why there is this difference, but it's really, it's, it's far beyond the communicative difference. It's a deeply structural difference. And it's based in the fact that the EU's global gateway at its essence is sustainable and sustainable in the following way. Um, as I mentioned before, when you have blending of multiple financial institutions, multiple member states and private companies um, as Ambassador Jan Kauskas mentioned, that have to be convinced to invest, that don't just jump because you tell them to do so. No, they have to be convinced. There has to be feasibility, uh, impact assessment. Like it's genuine convincing and evidence-based investment which is happening. And so that's pretty important when you look at sustainable investment because it means that whatever these companies are investing in they genuinely believe will function and work. So I think that's a very, very different and in some kind of way free marketeer mindset, which is more durable and more sustainable in terms of uh, what they're investing in. And there, there's a guaranteed market behind it. So that means that it doesn't need government uh, subsidies forever. In fact, on the contrary, it's likely to very much find its own legs and develop on its own. In addition, I think it's also... Very important to mention that Global Gateway has this regulatory 
transformative element to it, which you don't find in the other investment initiatives from, from other countries and regions. So what the, what the EU's Global Gateway is, is doing is it says, you know, you can sign an agreement with the EU like, like the, the EPCA and, and these very, very, um, very, very complex and very long trade agreements, uh, which essentially allow for the countries to also change their, uh, some of their trade practices, you know, switching to uh, more effective ways of doing commerce like, you know, digital e-customs or other types of quite transformative legislative changes, uh, which essentially help the countries develop into middle-income countries. In the case of Kazakhstan, it's already the case, but it's very likely that we'll see countries like Uzbekistan essentially increase quite dramatically in GDP per capita because they're taking these big transformative steps as a result of the of the of the global gateway initiative. And so in that case, I think it's also worth mentioning the case of Turkey. And um, I know that it's of course a slightly different case, but over the past you know several decades, the EU um, signed a customs union agreement with Turkey and it developed Turkey's infrastructure through something called TNT and through a lot of funds linked to something called the IPA funds and accession funds. And, and granted, it's not identical with the case of Central Asia, but there are some noticeable similarities. And so my, my prediction would be that if the Central Asian republics take Turkey as an example, there is this potential for, for a very regulatory transformative um, elements to Global Gateway, which can help these societies um, develop economically and essentially uh, become very important supply chain countries and also be able to benefit from a lot of technology transfer in their own right over the upcoming years. And that's something that, that goes both in line with, you know, kind of the more ethical environmental labor standard, uh, you know, UN sustainability goals but that also really benefit these countries in order to become, you know, more kind of sustainable, more uh, autonomously producing, more important uh, industrial uh, centers um, that have economies in their own right that are all, not only these kind of transit countries, let's say. And then perhaps the last last point, which is worth mentioning as well, is that when we look at when we look at for example, um, some of the work that's been done on protest tracking and instability in the region. It's quite interesting. What we see is that in areas where there are climate problems or water scarcity, or even sometimes where there's been large-scale investment from investors that don't come from the EU that have brought in, um, let's say, foreign labor and maybe have engaged in some types of uh, land acquisition, it has often resulted in a lot of local uh, animosity and a lot of um, labor animosity and a, and a lot of protest as well, which is essentially uh, something I think that many of the governments in the region, uh, of course, fear and are, are not happy about. So they don't want that kind of instability. And so here, the global gateway essentially tries to have um, a more labor-friendly and environmentally friendly attitude uh, legally um, towards uh, local communities, uh, precisely also with the goal of guaranteeing a more sustainable society of, of, of less um, of less instability, essentially. Okay, 
Well, uh, we could talk about this for a long time, and I hope I'm going to be able to invite you uh, both back onto the show in the future but so we can follow the progress of Global Gateway in Central Asia. But uh, for now, we're out of time. So thank you, Samuel and Ambassador Jankowskis, for being on the program. And a big thank you, as always, to Nathan Shoemaker, our Medjlis podcast producer in Washington, D.C. And a reminder, you can subscribe to the Medjlis podcast or the Central Asia and Focus newsletter by visiting Radio for Europe, Radio Liberty's website at rfarl.org. Thanks, and we'll be back soon. Bye-bye.